Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can take an in-depth look at the disorder, intermittent explosive disorder. So another question here would be, can I address the controversy surrounding this disorder? Now with this disorder, we see pathological impulsive aggression, and there's quite a bit of disagreement over this disorder. The mechanism has been debated, how it's conceptualized, the name of the disorder itself, and just the overall legitimacy of the classification has been disputed. Should this really be a disorder at all? Is it really just an expression of psychopathy or narcissism? So first here, I'm going to take a look at the definition of the disorder as we see it in the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. We see that this disorder requires recurrent behavioral outbursts representing a failure to control aggressive impulses. Now, this criterion can be met through either of the following ways. Verbal aggression occurring twice weekly on average for a period of three months, and the physical aggression here would not cause damage or injury. So with this first part of the first criterion, we have verbal aggression and physical aggression that doesn't do any damage. Now with the second part, this would be three outbursts within a 12-month period that result in damage or injury. So we see really a verbal aggression component or a physical aggression component. Now, of course, somebody could also have both of those and they would meet the first criterion. So moving through the criteria, the next one is the expression of aggressive behavior is grossly out of proportion to any provocation or stress. So notice here with this criterion, we could see provocation or stress as a precipitating factor or the outburst could just come out of nowhere. Next criterion, we see the aggression is not premeditated and not committed for any type of gain. So essentially, it's reactive and not instrumental anger. Moving on, we see the outbursts cause distress, dysfunction, or legal problems. This is very common with IED. Somebody must be at least six years old for this diagnosis, and the outburst cannot be better explained by another mental disorder, medical disorder, or substance use. Now, we see specifically mentioned here antisocial and borderline personality disorder. But that doesn't mean that IED cannot be comorbid with these disorders. 
It just means that the diagnosis of IED should not be given if the symptoms can be better accounted for by another disorder. The outbursts we see with IED are actually considered to be much more severe than what we would see with antisocial or borderline personality disorders. Intermittent explosive disorder is classified as an impulse control disorder, so it's interesting that there may be some confusion here with personality disorders, although that's not unheard of. That does happen sometimes with these mental disorders in the DSM. Now, looking at some of the other characteristics of this disorder, we see that the duration of an outburst is typically less than 30 minutes. Often these outbursts occur in response to a minor provocation by a person who is close to the individual. So a lot of the times we think about this as being related to an individual having difficulty in a romantic relationship. There are usually several less severe outbursts between the more severe outbursts. So maybe a few outbursts involving verbal aggression, and then we see a more serious physical aggressive act. Often there is remorse and embarrassment after an outburst. We see that this disorder is significantly more prevalent in individuals younger than age 35. The average age of onset is 14. It affects males more than females, and the prevalence in the population is somewhere between 3% and 7%. It's highly comorbid with anxiety disorders, mood disorders, and substance use disorders. That means it tends to co-occur with these disorders. So if we see IED, it's fairly likely we would see some of these other types of disorders diagnosed at the same time. Individuals with IED have an average of 43 attacks over their lifetime. During the course of their life, about 60% will receive treatment for some mental disorder symptoms, but only 28% will ever seek treatment for the anger. So we see a number of individuals looking for treatment for the substance use problems, anxiety problems, or mood disorders, but a much smaller percentage will actually seek treatment for the IED symptoms. So let's take a look at some of the controversy behind this disorder. I'll divide this part of the video into the different debates that we see on this topic. So the debate over the name, the debate over the origin and nature of the disorder, and the legitimacy of the classification itself. So I'll start with the debate over the name. A number of people believe that IED should really be called anger dysregulation disorder. I think the name's okay, mostly. Instead of the word explosive, though, it should be explosion, because it's not like there's an explosive disorder that's intermittent. It's the explosions that are actually intermittent. So I think that's a little bit more clear, intermittent explosion disorder. We don't see periods with this disorder of extremely low anger, like too low. With emotional dysregulation, which would include anger dysregulation, we would expect to see extremes. With IED, we only see someone moving from baseline to aggression, not from baseline to being extremely passive. Also, one way this disorder is conceptualized is as a tension building up and a release like in a tank that would be designed to hold air or water. When the pressure builds to a high level where it exceeds the tank's capacity to hold it, the tank fails catastrophically. That's where we get the explosion. So we see the disorder really lines up more closely with the idea of an explosion as opposed to a dysregulation. So now moving to the debate over the origin and nature of the disorder. So moving back to the first DSM, DSM-1, which was published back in 1952, we don't see the disorder in this DSM, but we do see the idea expressed as another disorder, passive-aggressive personality, aggressive type. This disorder was characterized by reacting to frustration with irritability, 
temper tantrums, and destructive behavior. So initially, this disorder was conceptualized as personality pathology. In DSM-2, we see that the diagnosis becomes explosive personality or epileptoid personality disorder. And here we see an inability to control aggression as a distinguishing feature. Verbal aggression here still counts. So in DSM-2, verbal aggression was still part of this conceptualization. Now, as we move to DSM-3, we first see the name intermittent explosive disorder. Now we see a change where it has to be a serious assault or destruction of property. So the verbal aggression part is dropped, moving from DSM-2 to DSM-3. We also see that there needed to be an absence of signs of impulsivity or aggressiveness between episodes. Therefore, it could not be diagnosed in individuals who had generalized aggression or impulsivity. That's much different than how it's conceptualized today, where we would expect to see problems between serious attacks. Now, moving to DSM-4, we see this limitation was removed. So now there could be signs of impulsivity and aggressiveness between episodes. This really expanded the opportunities here to diagnose. This brings us to DSM-5, and here we see verbal aggression comes back into the definition, greatly expanding the opportunity to diagnose this disorder. So we can see through the evolution of this disorder that it started out as a personality disorder and then became an impulse control disorder. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. So let's look at the mechanism here of how this disorder is supposed to function. There are multiple theories behind this disorder. The first one I already talked about a little bit. We see this buildup of stress and tension, then an explosion, and then a feeling of relief, right? So a very mechanical conceptualization for a cognitive process and an affective process. Another theory has the role of the brain being central to it. There is evidence that individuals with this disorder have decreased connectivity between regions of the brain that process social situations. And this could lead to a misinterpretation, right? So people can't quite read other people. And because they misinterpret other people's intentions, there's this outburst. Consistent with this, we see that individuals with IED have an impaired ability to recognize facial expressions associated with anger, disgust, and surprise. 
Also, they tend to label neutral faces as expressing disgust or fear. Now, the last conceptualization involves a learning problem. So this theory is that individuals with these symptoms don't learn to connect behavior with consequences, regardless of how severe those consequences are. Now moving to the debate over the legitimacy of the disorder. Should this really be a diagnostic classification? So first, it's important to start out with this idea. Even with classifications that seem a bit shaky, you can almost always find people who seem to fit the criteria perfectly. Situations where the disorder is really the best explanation. That alone isn't justification for a diagnostic classification. If that were a justification, we would have tens of thousands of disorders. For a classification to be useful, it has to represent the experiences of a relatively large number of people. If we have too many classifications, it becomes very difficult to conduct research on the best treatment protocols for those disorders. So I guess what I'm really saying here is that some people do have IED the way it is defined in the DSM, but that alone doesn't mean that this is a helpful classification. Now, in general, I do like the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. I've talked about this before in other videos. The work groups for the DSM take a lot of information together to make the determinations. I agree with most of the diagnostic classifications, meaning I believe the categories are congruent with the state of the research at that time that the DSM was published and congruent with my clinical experience. But again, this is in general. There are certain disorders that I don't really think hold together as well. Another problem with the DSM is it's not updated enough. For example, DSM-4-TR was published in 2000 and DSM-5 was published in 2013. So we see 13 years worth of research, thousands of articles before an update took place. If we look back through all the versions of the DSM, we typically see a progression as we learn more about a disorder. Many of these progressions seem to represent an improvement in our understanding of a disorder. With IED though, we see what seems to be scattered reasoning, not so much a progression, but rather a seemingly haphazard guessing at the mechanism and the nature of this disorder. Many of the major changes don't seem to be based on research. We don't really see an adequate explanation for the evolution of this disorder. And with many disorders in the DSM, we do. We see how criteria are added and removed, and there's some explanation as to why that was done. Another observation I have about this disorder, which makes it a little bit suspect, is this idea that there are no other disorders really like IED. So again, if with IED we see attacks of anger, we might expect that there would also be disorders that have attacks of other emotions that follow the same pattern that we see with IED. So are the disorders that have attacks of surprise, disgust, fear, sadness, and happiness? Why only the emotion of anger, right? Why do we have this idea that a tension builds up and then somebody explodes in anger and then feels better and not an idea that somebody could do the same thing again with surprise and sadness and the other emotions? This alone doesn't mean IED is a bad diagnosis. Rather, it just stands out as curious to me. We don't have any other disorders that are counterparts to IED, the same way that we do with some of the other disorders in the DSM. For example, with bipolar disorder, we see mania, somebody's very happy, and depression, somebody's extremely sad, right? So there are both sides to it expressed. 
or disorders like histrionic personality disorder compared to avoidant personality disorder. Someone who is overly enthusiastic in their approach, histrionic, and someone who avoids pretty much all the time, avoidant, right? So we see they're in some ways kind of opposites, but again, we don't see that with IED. One of my most significant challenges with IED is how easy this disorder is to confuse with other disorders, specifically three of the cluster B personality disorders, antisocial, borderline, and narcissistic personality disorders. So this makes sense for several reasons. We see, of course, that IED was originally conceptualized as a personality disorder. And we also see that the reasons that somebody gives for anger outburst are difficult to differentiate in terms of the pathology. It's not unusual for people who have demonstrated aggression to say that they don't know what caused it. And it's not unusual for them to apologize after being aggressive. These statements are actually highly consistent with antisocial and narcissistic personality disorders and consistent some of the time with what we see with borderline personality pathology. I think a number of people end up with the IED diagnosis because they manipulated clinicians. Motivations are much harder to figure out than behaviors. This is always a struggle for counselors because of the way we gather information. There's a limitation here. We can see people's behaviors, but we don't necessarily know what they're thinking. Just because somebody is aggressive without a clear indication of gain doesn't mean that there's an absence of gain. With narcissistic personality disorder, we know that someone can act out in anger in order to protect their own ego, in order to put somebody else down and cause harm, and in order to maintain control of a relationship. So there's a lot of things that they can gain that wouldn't necessarily be obvious, especially to a clinician who doesn't have a lot of experience with narcissism. For that clinician, it might just be easier to say the anger seems to occur without any clear precipitating factors. So it must be IED. Some other difficulties I have with this diagnosis, confusion about the cause seems to be problematic here. Is it because of a disproportionately strong response to a small provocation, or is it a buildup of stress? This buildup that becomes so great that somebody eventually explodes with anger. Now, what about verbal aggression? That's another struggle I have here. Sometimes this debate about the legitimacy of IED comes down to this particular component. Was verbal aggression included just to expand opportunities to diagnose people? Interestingly, according to the research literature, this is one area that this diagnosis actually seems to get right. Individuals with IED who meet just the verbal aggression component are quite similar to individuals with IED who meet the physical aggression criterion. We see that both groups report more aggressive acts, greater anger, and more anger lability, so more difficulty regulating anger than individuals with personality disorders. So verbal aggression really needs to be taken seriously. That's one thing we can learn from this debate over intermittent explosive disorder. So what are my thoughts on this disorder? Well, in my opinion, there's no way that the prevalence of this disorder is between three and 7% of the population. That's highly prevalent. I just don't see it in my clinical experience. And I'm not convinced that we have accurate diagnosing to the point where we can say it must definitely be in this range. I think that there are some legitimate cases of IED. I've seen instances of people who did not seem to have underlying personality pathology who really couldn't seem to stop being aggressive. At the same time, however, 
I think we take a risk in pathologizing every behavior. Sometimes it really comes down to personal responsibility or personality pathology, or potentially both. For example, I've seen several occasions where individuals with IED were able to refrain from aggressive behavior when they were in court in front of a judge. Wasn't that situation stressful? Wouldn't that count as provocation? Yet again, somehow they managed to restrain their aggression. Even though I believe that IED needs further scrutiny, I don't think it should be removed from the DSM. However, I think its usage should be limited. In the end, I think a number of these diagnostic decisions around this disorder come down to asking somebody why they had an outburst. And if they say, I don't know, then the clinician says, oh, it must be IED, right? It's kind of a simplistic way of looking at it. Again, based on limitations that counselors work under, but it's not a valid way to deal with the problem. We need a higher level of clinical precision when diagnosing someone who has impulsive aggression, really to determine if it is pathological impulsive aggression or not, and more education about how personality pathology may explain some of the symptoms we see here with IED. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.